0: This is Spacetime Series 25, Episode 33, for broadcast on the 18th of March 2022. Coming up on Spacetime, the dinosaurs last spring, supermassive black holes in a dance to the death, and China sets a new domestic satellite launch record. All that and more coming up on Spacetime.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: A new study has concluded that the KT boundary event asteroid, which killed all the non-avian dinosaurs, slammed into the Earth during the Northern Hemisphere spring. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, are based on an examination of the remains of filter-feeding sturgeons and paddlefishes that died in mass when the asteroid hit, looking at the growth patterns inside the well-preserved fossil bones combined with carbon isotope data. The authors were also able to show that the fish had impact debris lodged in their gills, but not further down in the digestive systems, indicating they had died almost instantly. The authors say that the spring timing of this catastrophic impact would have coincided with a particularly sensitive stage for many northern hemisphere species that reproduced and had developing offspring during the spring. Researchers say Southern Hemisphere ecosystems, which were struck during autumn, appear to have recovered up to twice as fast as those in the Northern Hemisphere. The KT, or Cretaceous Tertiary Boundary, event occurred 66 million years ago, when a 10-15 to kilometer wide asteroid slammed into a shallow sea off the coast of what is now the Gulf of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. The impact released as much energy as 100 teratons of TNT, more than a billion times the energy of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs used to end World War II. The impact triggered one of the largest mass extinction events in Earth's history, wiping out some 75% of all life, including all non-avian dinosaurs. The initial impact created the 180-kilometre-wide Chicxulub crater, throwing molten ejection debris high into the atmosphere and triggering a massive tsunami hundreds of metres high, together with devastating earthquakes, land tsunamis and volcanic eruptions which shook the entire planet. Shockwaves from the collision circled the planet while burning debris from the impact ejector thrown up into the atmosphere began raining back down onto the surface, causing an intense pulse of infrared radiation, which began cooking any life exposed and combined with the molten lava flowing from volcanic eruptions sparked global wildfires which devastated vast areas of the earth, burning out vegetation and killing any animal life on the surface which somehow survived the initial blast wave. Worse still, the asteroid impacted the planet at a location rich in sulphate-containing gypsum, which was instantly vaporised by the impact and then dispersed as an aerosol into the atmosphere, only to rain back down to the surface as highly caustic acid rain, burning anything it touched and causing long-term effects on the climate and food chain. Smoke and ash from the wildfires and volcanic eruptions, together with dust from the ejected debris, initially caused a blanket-like greenhouse effect, preventing heat from escaping and causing surface temperatures to soar. Eventually, temperatures cooled, as the smoke, ash, dust and ejected debris blocked out sunlight for months if not years on end, creating what astronomers refer to as an impact winter, which caused temperatures to plummet. At about the same time, massive volcanic eruptions in what is now India, known as the Deccan Traps flood basalts, began flowing across the subcontinent, pumping out more toxic gas and pollution into the atmosphere, further contributing to the growing impact winter. Evidence for the global nature of the KT boundary event can be seen around the entire planet in the form of a dark line, a boundary line, in the geologic record. Known as the KT Event Boundary, it contains high levels of the metal iridium, which is rare in Earth's crust, but abundant in asteroids, thereby providing a calling card of what caused the entire event. This is Space Time. Still to come, a supermassive black hole in a dance to the death, and a new science center on the New South Wales Mid-North Coast. All that and more still to come on Space Time. astronomers have spotted a pair of supermassive black holes locked in an epic cosmic dance to the death some 9 billion light-years away. The two supermassive black holes appear to be separated by about 50 times the distance between the Sun and Pluto, orbiting around each other every two Earth years. Each of these black holes have masses that are hundreds of millions of times larger than that of our Sun. When the pair eventually merge, in roughly 10,000 years' time, A titanic collision is expected to shake space and time itself, sending gravitational waves across the universe. Astronomers detected the waltzing pair thanks to a powerful quasar shining out from the darkness like a beacon in the night. Quasars are powerful beams of energy and matter, as bright as entire galaxies, generated by feeding supermassive black holes millions to billions of times the mass of the Sun. Material falling onto the accretion disk surrounding these monster black holes is stretched, crushed and torn apart at the subatomic level by immense gravitational forces and through friction caused by collisions with other material already in the disk. Most of this material is destined to eventually pass a point of no return called the event horizon and then fall forever into the black hole singularity. But some of the superheated matter is caught up in magnetic field lines before reaching the event horizon. And this material instead is channeled into powerful beams jetting out perpendicular to the accretion disk at close to the speed of light, shining as incredibly bright beacons visible on the other side of the universe. The quasar observed in this new study, known as PKS 2131-021, belongs to a subclass of quasars known as blazars, in which the jets point directly towards the Earth. Astronomers already knew that quasars could be produced by two orbiting supermassive black holes, but finding direct evidence for this has proved difficult. The findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, represent only the second known candidate for a pair of supermassive black holes caught in the act of merging. The first was a quasar called OJ-287, which involved a pair of supermassive black holes orbiting each other at a greater distance, circling each other every nine Earth years. The telltale evidence for the new black holes came from radio observations spanning 45 years, which showed a powerful jet emanating from one of the two black holes shifting back and forth due to the pair's orbital motion. This was causing periodic changes in the quasar's radio light brightness. The study's lead author, Sandra O'Neill from Caltech, says that when she realised that the peaks and troughs from the light curve detected from recent times matched peaks and troughs observed back in 1975 and 83, she knew something very special was going on. Most if not all galaxies contain supermassive black holes at their centres, including one in our own galaxy, the Milky Way, known as Sagittarius A-star. But compared to these monsters, Sagittarius A star is just a pipsqueak, a mere 4.3 million times the mass of our Sun. When galaxies merge, their individual black holes eventually sink towards the middle of the newly formed galaxy, and eventually join together to form an even more massive black hole. As the black holes spiral towards each other, they increasingly disturb the fabric of space-time, sending out gravitational waves which were first predicted by Albert Einstein more than 100 years ago. The Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory LIGO detects gravitational waves from pairs of black holes up to dozens of times the mass of the Sun. However, the supermassive black holes found at the centres of galaxies have millions to billions of times the mass of our Sun and give off much lower frequency gravitational waves than those detected by LIGO. In the future, pulsar timing arrays, which consist of an array of pulsating dead stars precisely monitored by radio telescopes, should be able to detect the gravitational waves coming from supermassive black holes and the upcoming laser interferometer space antenna LISA should be able to detect merging black holes whose masses are between 1,000 and 10 million solar masses. So far, no gravitational waves have been detected from any of these heavier sources, but PKS 2131-021 provides the most promising target. This space-time. Still to come, a new science centre for the New South Wales Mid-North Coast And China sets a new domestic satellite launch record. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Pacific coastal town of Port Macquarie on the New South Wales mid-north coast is about to realise its long held dream of a new astronomy and science centre thanks to a $4.8 million grant from the federal and state governments. The town's links to astronomy and space science go as far back as astronomer William John MacDonnell, who in 1882 was assigned with the task of documenting a transit of Venus from what is now known as Transit Hill in the middle of Port Macquarie. Transits of Venus, together with a bit of high school trigonometry, can be used to calculate the distance between the Earth and the Sun. In 1885, MacDonald imported a 150mm refracted telescope from Thomas Grubb's Astronomical Instrument Works in Dublin and installed it in a new purpose-built observatory behind the Bank of New South Wales building, where he worked as a manager. Unfortunately, the weather turned out to be cloudy that day, but the town's connection to astronomy was established. Seven decades later, local Port Macquarie pub owner Bob Stanford began collecting money to purchase a telescope for convalescing return war veterans to use during their stay at the nearby Hastings District Hospital. The hospital's spectacular hilltop location offered commanding views of the town, the stunning Pacific coastline, and out to sea. They eventually raised enough money to purchase a 127mm refractor telescope. However, it proved to be a bit too big and cumbersome for the patients to use and eventually lay dormant. Then in 1961, the local council and Rotary Club agreed to build a community astronomical observatory at a seaside park to house the 127mm telescope. The facility began operating in 1962, with funding from volunteers, public donations and admissions paid by visitors, and it's been open to the public ever since. It's currently home to a C-14 Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope on a Paramount MX mount. The new science centre will house not only the telescope and observatory, but also an 85-seat auditorium and multi-purpose display areas. A feature on the new centre is in this month's issue of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. Joining us now with the details is the magazine's editor, Jonathan Nally.
2: G'day Stuart Yeah, Now, this is really great. The local town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales and the east coast of Australia has got a $4.8 million grant from the government to build a fantastic new observatory and science centre. I mean, getting this sort of money uh, is virtually unheard of out of government but Port Macquarie's had a very long history of having really solid involvement in amateur astronomy they've had an observatory there for a long time and a very active astronomical society they've been really great at doing this sort of thing and the observatory is probably the best location on earth it's literally right across the road from the beach it's in this beautiful little park in this beautiful beach in the mid north coast the sort of semi-tropical area it's just glorious so anyway they've got the designs all drawn up and everything and uh, they're going to have a fantastic new observatory there and, and, and you know, the science centre and all the bells and whistles that you expect from one of these science centres these days. So it'll be tremendous. The observatory's actually been there since 1960. It hasn't needed an upgrade uh, for a long time. So I think the fact that Port Macquarie is a big, tourist attraction area. It's a really lovely part of the world and the fact that they've got this long history and people just love the observatory meant that they were successfully able to, uh, with the the help of a lot of people, you know, the local council and everything, they've been able to secure this grant. So it won't be too long now. I mean, this um, science centre is up and running and it out with all the latest tech and displays and things to delight both young and old. I can't wait to go up and visit actually. I've always known about the Port Macquarie Observatory, never managed to get there to have a look at it so um, I really want to see this new one when it's up and running.
0: Something to compete against the big shrimp and the big banana. Oh, the big, the big
2: guitar and the big mango and the big this and the big that. I don't know how many of these. I think the uh, only one I've big...
0: ever seen is the big sheep at Goulburn. Oh, I think that's the only one I've I, seen. I went past the big merino
2: just recently. Actually,
0: I was driving down that road. But, that's um, the big merino. It's called, isn't it? It's
2: big marino. It's made out of concrete, and they had to shift it from one part of the town to the other when they the uh, put a bypass around yeah. the town. Yeah, so they, they just jacked it up and put it on a trailer and just moved it. But what about the big banana, there's a big banana. Yeah, there's a big mango and big pineapple. Yeah, there's a big penguin. If you can get on a famous some online encyclopedia thing, and look up a list of big things in Australia, and there's about 140 of them, I think. Each town is <laughs> like, like Tamworth has got a big guitar because it's the country music capital of Australia, and big banana and crops title that used to grow a lot of bananas, and so every town that's got its own little thing has made a big thing about its little thing. So um, anyway, really great news that a regional town has got almost five million dollars grant to produce a science centre, not a sports stadium or this or that, but actual science centre where it's going to educate kids, you know, the school kids will come from miles around to learn about science and astronomy and everything and nature and, and hopefully and some of them to go on to careers and, and that sort of thing. You know, I would have loved to have had something like this because I spent my high school years in the North Coast of New South Wales and there was nothing like this available. We didn't even have a telescope in our school. So uh, I just envy these kids and everyone else there so much that they're going to have this magnificent
0: facility um, that, that not too long from now. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And this is Space Time. Still to come, China sets a new domestic satellite launch record, and later in the science report, a second study confirms that people who've had COVID-19 experience higher levels of cognitive decline. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Well, after a slow start to the new year, China's launched a flotilla of new spacecraft in recent weeks. Highlight of the campaign has been the launch of Beijing's new Long March 8 rocket, carrying a record 22 satellites from the Wing Chang spacecraft launch site on Hanan Island in the South China Sea. This was only the second flight of the 50-metre-tall Long March 8. The new launcher is based on the earlier Longmart 7 and is designed to place payloads of up to 5,000 kilograms into 700-kilometre-high sun-synchronous orbits. The 22 satellites involved in this mission were primarily composed of remote-sensing Earth observation spacecraft. They were eventually released into the correct orbits in a series of 12 separate groups. Beijing claims they'll be mainly used for commercial remote sensing operations, maritime environment monitoring, forestry fire prevention and disaster mitigation. On the same day, China launched a Long March 4C rocket from the Zhai Satellite Launch Center in northwestern China carrying the LSAR-01B Earth Observation Satellite, which Beijing also claims will be used for commercial remote sensing operations, maritime environment monitoring, forest fire prevention and disaster mitigation. The LSAR-01B will join its twin LSAR-01A satellite, which was launched back on January the 26th. The two 3.2-ton spacecraft, each among the largest Earth observation satellites ever launched by China, are equipped with L-band synthetic aperture radars designed to provide better detail of natural and wooded areas compared to the C-band synthetic aperture radars, which usually provide high-definition imaging of urban areas. Less than a week later, China launched a Long March 2C rocket carrying another remote sensing satellite, as well as six Chinese internet satellites from the Zhaichang Satellite Launch Center in southwestern China's Sichuan Province. Since 2016, Beijing has launched more than 180 Earth observation, surveillance, or reconnaissance satellites designed to provide near continuous high resolution and electronic monitoring of areas of interest to China. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study has supported earlier research suggesting that people who suffered from COVID-19 experience higher levels of cognitive decline. The new research, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, examined patients over the age of 60 who caught the virus in Wuhan early in the pandemic. Scientists found they're experiencing higher rates of cognitive decline compared to their unaffected spouses. Researchers recruited 1,438 early COVID-19 patients and 438 unaffected participants to undergo cognitive testing six months and then a year after the COVID-19 patients were infected. Scientists conducted brain function tests on all participants, finding those who've had COVID-19 had lower scores than their unaffected counterparts at both 6 and 12 months after infection. And those who've had severe COVID-19 scored even lower than those who've had milder COVID-19 infections. The findings mirror an earlier UK brain imaging study reported in the journal Nature, which found significant changes in the brains of people who've suffered from COVID-19. In that study, researchers compared brain scans from 785 people aged 51 to 81 before and after mostly mild COVID-19 infection. They also looked at brain scans from 401 people who had not been infected. Scientists found significant deleterious long-term effects in those who had been infected with COVID-19, including changes in parts of the brain that affect memory, smell, and a larger degree of cognitive decline. Over 6 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it first escaped from Wuhan, China. The World Health Organization says the true death toll is likely to be at least double that amount, with over 450 million confirmed cases globally. A new study says that thanks to global warming, we can expect a 29% increase in areas of the planet which frequently are affected by fire by the end of the century. The findings reported in the journal Nature Communications show that fire-prone areas in temperate regions and northern hemisphere boreal climates are likely to have the most significant expansion and lengthening of their fire seasons driven by rising temperatures. The paper shows that for Australia, it's the east coast and areas around Perth that are likely to see some of the biggest increases in potential fire season. A new study claims that teens who use drugs at school but quit in their early 20s can end up being just as successful in life as those who stayed clear of drugs in the first place. The findings, reported in the journal Addiction Research and Theory, are based on studies tracking some 2,350 people from birth well into adulthood. Researchers questioned them about their drug use at age 21 30. They found the majority of participants who were using cannabis and or amphetamines at problematic levels during adolescence were no longer doing so by age 20. Looking at each participant's socioeconomic status, quality of life, and quality of intimate relationships at age 30, the authors found no indication that teen drug use reduced their chances of a good life, taking into account the wide range of prior experiences and behaviour. However, continued drug use above the age of 30 was linked to much lower success. The ancient Chinese traditional practice of feng shui focuses on using energy forces to create stability and harmony in people and their environments. The term feng shui translates into wind water, two elements credited with encouraging energy flow. It's used as a way to help align buildings, spaces and people in a way which directs a cosmic current known as Qi. The problem is there's no scientific evidence supporting the existence of Qi. Tim Menham from Australia Skeptic says just because Feng Shui's been used for thousands of years doesn't mean it's real.
1: It is the practice of trying to organize your living environment based on energies which are part of qi but which is the universal energy that flows through everything. Basically it's trying to sort of put aside bad luck, bad vibes by organizing everything from furniture in your house to the layout of your house to where buildings are put and how you lay out a garden and that sort of stuff. And you find all these things around in Chinese practices. There are so many inconsistencies and so many silliness. In Feng Shui, that you wonder where the thing got started from in the first place. It is a pseudoscience There is nothing to even indicate from the very basic of Qi, which has never been proved to exist, all the way up to how the little practices and how you get around the practices. made. I was told once. I mean, my house—you walk in the front door and you can see out the back. Okay, I was told it was back that, that I'm not going to get a Chinese person buying my house. But if you put a little spot on the doorknob, that's okay. That fixes it. Okay. And I thought, go around with a little pack of stickers and putting them on everything. I oh, know it's making fun of it and silly, but it is, quite frankly, silly.
0: I remember watching an episode of Grand Designs and they had a uh, a house that was built to very high feng shui standards. It was the most impractical pile of bricks and wood I've ever seen. They had little rooms that were simply there to store energy in. It was just, it was horrible.
1: Yeah, It's the whole concept of the underlying philosophy, well the underlying energy thing, which is is dodgy, to the philosophy that you, you can manipulate this energy by how you place furniture or rooms or whatever, and then the fact that you can get around it By using little tricks, because someone comes to you and says, "Well, this is my house." They say, "Well, not going to work." we'll saying, "This is my house," so okay, we'll find some way to divert the energy into different places or that sort of stuff. Moving buildings might be a bit harder, actually, but the, you know, Feng Shui does apply to where a building is sited and that sort of thing. So it has been a long-standing belief, and that doesn't mean it's true, though. Just because it's been around for a long time doesn't mean it's true. And Feng Shui has no basis in uh, I'd say science, but there's sort of probably no basis in reality outside of a placebo effect.
0: That's Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now.